Hello and welcome to another episode of 177 Nations of Tasmania. So what associations come to mind when you hear Norway mentioned? Dark, foreboding, far away, Viking ships traversing dramatic fjords, or trolls in dark forests? But beyond these cliches, for some Norway may also be associated with world-leading health and education systems, and one of the highest qualities of life in the world. Who would leave such a place, you may ask? Well, Aneta is one such a Norwegian. But funnily enough, she didn't, as some might be expecting, leave because of the cold. More about that later. The short answer is, she met a Tasmanian man after studying at drama school in London. The long version? Well, I'll let Aneta tell you about that herself. Hello, I am Aneta Victoria Barker, and we are sitting at the stage in King's Hall in Railton today. It's a small place. I wouldn't have found it if my husband wasn't born here. What brought you to Tasmania? I met a handsome Australian in London. And what were the, what were the circumstances? Well, that's a tiny bit of a funny story, actually. Um, I had broke, broken up a relationship, and Valentine's Day was coming up. And I got three messages on my phone, three sort of Valentine messages, all two different languages, all of them very badly spelt. <laughs> and I thought, I need something new. So I, um, shortly after I moved house, and I moved into this shared house, and there was my future husband, little did I know. Um, I went to London because I got into a drama school there, Rose Bruford. So I had finished drama school and I was acting and working. And my husband, my soon-to-be husband, he was, he had finished um, Australian, um, the Australian army and he was just having fun traveling the world and yeah. had sort of ended up in London, needed a job, needed to get more money to travel. I think he was planning to travel to Mexico and to learn Spanish. Six months later, he found himself in Norway learning Norwegian, so that's... I just remember him being very quiet and sort of very calm. I can be a bit all over the place. Okay. And he was this, this calm center that I was drawn to. We didn't go straight from London to Australia. Um, we had um, a couple of years of fun working, you know, living in London, and then I ended up pregnant suddenly, and then I... You know, my husband, my then fiance said, um, you know, Norway or Australia, where, where do you want to go? We can't have it in London, because unless you're very rich, it's hard to have children in London. So then we ended up in Oslo. How many years were you in Oslo? Six years. Uh, eventually, my husband couldn't take the cold anymore. He was working outside in a big puffy suit, dealing with boats, and yeah, it got a bit rough. And I stayed in London for about 10, 11 years. Mm -hmm. a, yeah, London gets under your skin. I, I loved London. I, yeah. And then stupidly, I thought that Australia was going to be similar. <laughs> but coming from Oslo to London, you know, the, the big cities, the first nights here, um, listening to the, the animals kept me awake. There was this sheep, little... What do you call it? A baby sheep that was crying. Yeah, the lamb was crying for its mother. And I was breastfeeding at the time and I was laying in bed leaking, going, feed that lamb, please. 
Because <laughs> it's like, bye, bye. And was, what, what took you to London in the first place? Uh, that was drama school. But why especially London? Was there any particular reason or was that just the, the school you wanted to go to? Uh, well, it was the school I wanted to go to. It was also the other on, only language I could speak. It's not like I could speak. I could speak a bit of German, but not well enough to go to, yeah, to school at that level. Um, I got lots of, you know, went to auditions, was in different plays, different French plays in London. Uh, and then I had, you know, crappy jobs, really as a waitress, as uh, a sales assistant in Harrods and Selfridges, makeup assistant, yeah. I even worked in the kitchen where I had to wake up very early in the morning because I was good for, for auditions and for rehearsals at night. Where I chopped up vegetables and made salads and yeah. <laughs> I have so, lots of skills now. <laughs> yeah. that, that sounds like a, a typical, well, you're a cliche actor's life yeah. you know, people joke about. It. No, it is. I was, I was working with a lot of other actors. <laughs> well, you, you have to pay your rent, and yeah. rent is a lot in London. Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely, absolutely. So how long were you in London with your husband before you moved to Norway? About two years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I got pregnant, and then we decided very quickly that London was not the place to be. And, yeah, we ended up in Norway, so I had... I had my kids there, which I'm glad about mm -hmm. in hindsight, because birthing, you know, giving birth in Norway is free. I was shocked to hear how much my, my sister-in-law, she chose to have um, cesareans mm -hmm. and the prices she paid just to get her own room up in Brisbane, Brisbane was like shocking to me. Yeah. I was like, oh, your own room? Of course you get your own room. What do you mean? You know, I was used to the Norwegian model where you, I went in, I had a water birth had the twins, had my own room, had number four in the water bed. It was, yeah, it was the royal service all, all along. Even the royals go in and do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm glad in hindsight that I did that. Yeah. Yeah. And how was it the, um, because you say your husband, does, he doesn't speak Norwegian? Or he... he does. Well, he his second language is now actually Norwegian. Mm -hmm. He, I think he learned, but... He, he went to a Norwegian course for six months where he attempted to learn Norwegian, but it was at the same time that our twins were born. Mm -hmm. And for anyone who's ever had twins, that's like a big thing and it takes a lot of time and you're absolutely, I was absolutely exhausted. And for him to be away one night, first for the language and then another night, two nights a week, and then he had to spend time learning it, it just wasn't a good time. I needed him to feed the babies, you know. So he ended up quitting after six months. So he can say basic things and he understands what we're talking about. He, yeah, but he never quite got there. Like he couldn't, uh, he, he, his work was from, um, his boss was British. So he was bilingual Norwegian British. So he spoke English to him. So because he didn't have to learn the language for his work, he got spoiled a bit. And then family members, most people in Norway speak English. And then after, so they spoke English to him, but then after a certain time in social settings, people get sick of it. They go, you've been here, yeah, you've been here two years now, you should know the language. And then they just stop speaking to you. Mm. Like they speak to you in Norwegian and you either get it or you don't. Yeah, yeah. So he got a bit of that treatment yeah. and felt, felt it a bit. 
when my brothers were saying, oh, he should have picked it up by now, you know? Yeah, I think that might... Uh, Which is hard when you're not, like, I think I started speaking English when I was 10. I can still remember the very first lesson. You know, my name is Aneta. What is his name? His name is yeah. this. What is her name? Her name is this. You know, and then, and then in year eight, you go on to German or French. So everyone sort of knows the basic of three languages. And then when you come in, the second language that you've learned is not even, he, he can't use it. And I can see that it's happened with my children now, like my oldest, he's supposed to speak a tiny bit of Japanese and a tiny bit of French. It's just laughable. He's had it for years. He can't even say my name is, you know. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. You're spoiled when you, when you speak English, people, you don't have to learn other languages because people understand you. I think I just uh, expected him to cope and settle. I probably could have done more. I think he didn't have that many friends. Looking back on it, there were some Australian people. I, I remember I tried to get him to play AFL or something. There was an Aussie AFL club, and he was like, I didn't even play that in Australia. Why would, why would I start now, sort of thing? Yeah. And I was like, well, just to meet some Aussies. And he was like, well, I'm in another country. I don't want to meet Aussies. I want to meet... <laughs> You know, these type of people. So we, we were a busy family, you know, with four kids. I had friends. My friends became his friends. My brother and, and yeah. And Norwegians work a lot, you know, it's, it's work, work and play. Sort of a bit serious. Um, I've probably had more to adjust to coming here. Because I thought it was going to be, okay, I speak English, it's going to be fine. It's, it's sort of a version of London, and it really wasn't. The first year I was oblivious, and I thought, this is going to be fine. And then I actually ended up a bit depressed. Mm -hmm. Not like clinically, but, but I was like, oh my God. I, every, when my husband and I had discussions, I would run out of the house screaming, I hate Australia, I hate Australians, this is a shit country. And then one time... Um, we had had a ditch dug for our house and I actually fell down in the ditch because it was dark at night. Oh and, and the ditch was outside our bedroom window and I cried a bit extra for my husband to, to get attention. And he, he said that he was lying in bed thinking, yeah, she can just lay there. Because <laughs> I ran out to get comfort from my cat. We had a, a Maine Coon that we bought in London and brought to Norway and then brought to Australia. Oh. He only lasted one year here. But he was fantastic. He could he could even talk. Yeah. So um, I struggled then for a couple of years, and then I realized that I had to find my own kind of people. I couldn't just rely on my husband's friends and and my in-laws and family. And I found actors here. Mm -hmm. You know, met some some writers and some actors here, and then. Then, then I found my own, you know, actors are actors everywhere, they're lovely people. So then, then I got happier and more settled and started becoming a part of the community sort of theatre. And what was the, uh, what prompted you to move from Norway to Tasmania? Uh, it was mainly because we were trying to buy a house. Okay. We were trying to buy a house loan and my husband was the one who had the proper job. I was working in the kindergarten. He was, he was designing boats. 
Um, he has a background from the military with uh, mechanical engineering, so he was doing boat building. And we just couldn't get along. They wouldn't, you know, no banks would accept us cause, because he was foreign. So we eventually decided that, yeah. And, and the, the fact that his parents were getting a bit older and wanted to see the grandkids, his sister was aiming to move to Sydney. She's since ended up in Brisbane. Yeah, it was, and he had parents that were young enough to be capable grandparents. My father passed when I was 13 and my mother had an accident uh, when I was 28. So she was, she, when we were in Norway, she was brain damaged and in an institution. So she wasn't a help. She was sort of another person that I had to look after. Uh, so yeah, we moved for family really. And what, what would you say was the most challenging thing for you, at, the, at least at the beginning? I'm a very emotional person and I'm used to it being okay to express that emotion. Uh, that was not okay. People looked at me as if I was crazy, you know. I lost my mum in 2017 and I remember I started crying in the car once because there was a song coming on on the radio. And my mother-in-law said, oh my God, pull yourself together. You, perhaps you should go and, you know, you, you obviously depressed. And I thought, no, I'm not. I'm just mourning my mom. And I, I actually had to go to a French friend who lives here in Relton and, and knock on her door and say, I can't cry. Like, I have no friends that I can express how upset I am. Mm. And she was like, come in, come in, cry. You know, come on, just cry. Like, I, I guess that's a Scandinavian thing that you can cry, you can scream a bit, Russians. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I felt, I do feel that, that Australians, I don't know whether it's the British thing, because there's a little bit the same in the UK, that you sweep everything under the carpet and you just don't talk about things. Yeah, you know, quite a lot of people I've talked to have mentioned things like that. Um, and the fact that there's a kind of uh, superficialness to yeah. social relations. Like when very you say superficial. And my new saying is I can only talk about the weather for so long and then I need to talk about something a bit more real or, or substantial because otherwise it's just a waste of time for me. Yeah, it's totally yeah. that's exactly what the, the Finnish lady that I interviewed said a really interesting thing, which I really connected with actually, yeah. that in, in Finland, it's small talk is almost impolite because yeah. you're wasting the person's mm. time by not mm. getting to the point. Yeah, exactly. So I used to think that when people said, hi, how are you? that they actually cared and wanted to know how I was. And in London, it took me a few years when I was like, oh, I actually woke up with a bit of a migraine, but I'm feeling better now. And they would look at me strangely going, uh, I'm all right, thanks, how are you? That's how you're supposed to answer, you know? And then I had came here and I realized it's a bit the same. And I had to ask my mother-in-law, how do I ask people if I actually want to know how they are? And she said, then you say, are you okay? And I go, ah, okay. So now I go, are you okay? But I have met people who, you know, when I go and... Because I, I open up quite easily. You know, I'll open up and I'll tell them perhaps things that you wouldn't usually tell when you first meet people. And then after I've spoken for a bit, I go, okay, so what about you now? Let's, you know, let's get all the skeletons out of the closet. And some people talk and then you go, and then they get the bit like, oh, well, wow, I can't believe I told you that, you know, I don't really 
say this much. And, but it's nice. It's 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 real and it's it's genuine, and you you share, you know, this experience of living. Yeah. So would that be in that situation in Norway? Would it be just normal to be able to talk about your, yeah. your real feelings and so yeah. on? Yeah, it would. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And even how depressed you are and <laughs> how you want to dig yourself a hole and yeah, that's just normal saying. It doesn't mean that you actually are that depressed. <laughs> Norwegians can be introverted too. They, yeah, you sort of keep to yourself. It, there's this funny, funny thing on YouTube, I think, about this American who's dating this Swedish person, and they live in a block of flats, and she keeps looking out the door before she walks out the stairways to go downstairs. And he's like, "Why don't you say hi to your neighbors?" And I recognize that. I I lived in a <laughs> in a you know block of flats, and I used to do that. You don't really want to talk to your neighbors if you don't have to. <laughs> So you wait till they're downstairs and then you rush out. Perhaps because we're so genuine, you can't just say, hi, how are you? Yeah. You know, perhaps it's become practical to, to do that when you meet neighbours all the time, because we're so, you don't always have time to that, for that deep conversation, so you'd rather not. Uh, I grew up in Oslo. I'm born and bred in Oslo. And what kind of uh, neighbourhood or environment did you grow up in? Uh, what, was, what was it like? Uh, it was a green leafy suburb of Oslo, um, It's uh, yeah, just big houses, nice big gardens, you know, 20 minutes outside Oslo. Both my parents worked in Oslo. Uh, my father was an, what you call it, an entrepreneur. He built houses. Okay. He had a firm that he built houses and sold them. And my mother worked in publishing. I had a very normal, happy upbringing. Nowadays, a normal childhood, you would start childcare when the child is one year old. When I was little, it was more like when you were five, six, you go to childcare, you go to school, you have after-school activities, gymnastics, ballet for me, um, soccer or football, like we call it in Europe, for my brother. Um, we, I had two working parents at the time that wasn't totally common uh, so a lot of people in my class would have stay at home mums my mum was a career woman so we had to stay a live-in nanny that would pick us up and drop us at school and serve us dinner before my parents got dinner at night and yeah I have lovely memories of childhood like long summer holidays and beautiful Christmases my mum loved Christmas she started Christmas early December and it went on to mid-January. It was, yeah, Christmas was big. Beautiful birthday parties, lots of friends. So what, what, what did Christmas entail for your family? What, what would you, what would you oh, have done? Oh, lots of Christmas parties, lots of family Christmas parties, long, big tables with lots of homemade food. Like, yeah, she would, she, my mum grew up on a farm, so there was all these things that you make from a pig, you know. I still celebrate on the 24th of yeah. letting Nan my mother-in-law, she has the 25th still. <laughs> so we have two Christmases. Well, it just doesn't feel like Christmas for me. It feels like first day of Christmas, which is sort of a hangover day for me. Yeah, yeah. I think there's quite a few families uh, like that in Tasmania, yeah. where one is, has a European tradition and yeah. the other one. Yeah, so we, we dress up a bit more. 
Okay. It's like Christmas Eve is a big day. Like that's where you put on the national costume and go to church and you're at, in your nights. And then I came here and, you know, put my children in a shirt and trousers and a dress and everyone else is in a T-shirt and a shorts. And I'm like, ah, oh, this is a bit wrong. It's a bit hot. <laughs> you mentioned that people wear more you know, dress up and do all those things. But how, how does family celebrate Christmas in Norway? Well, you have uh, from first day, the f December 1st, you would have a Christmas calendar. And you might have noticed on the Christmas calendar that you only have 24 windows, which is an ongoing discussion in our household that Christmas is on the 24th, not on the 25th. <laughs> Probably because they're made in Germany, but... Uh, yeah, and then you have on the 13th of December, you have Lucia, you know, the Italian saint that... Um, Long story, but uh, about light and darkness. And you, the girls dress up in, with light crowns and go in kindergarten. There's always one girl that gets chosen to be Lucia. I was the lucky one. I haven't oh, had long blonde hair. <laughs> so that's a nice memory to have had. Uh, and then Chris, little, little Christmas. We usually have uh, like something we call Christmas porridge with a, mm -hmm. with a little almond. In the, you hide the white almond in the porridge and the one that gets it you know, get the mass and pig. And then Christmas Eve starts early in the morning. Usually half of Norway will be watching Walt Disney on, on TV. And, you know, it builds up waiting for presents and waiting for the food. And some families, even if they're not religious, you would usually go to church. And then the church bell rings Christmas in around five o'clock. And that's when you're allowed to eat. And then after the meal, then you open the presents. Yeah. And, and when you got older, you might not have gone to the early church service, you might have gone to midnight mass then. It must be very different celebrating Christmas here. Yeah, you, I've gotten a bit used to it now. I'm like, I close the doors and the windows and just have Christmas inside. And then after the presents, I realized, okay, we've, we've made it more of a lunch than a dinner now because the kids can't wait that long and yes. they use the opening as, as soon as they wake up the next day and yeah it's just hot and yeah so we do it usually a bit earlier and then it's playtime after and instead of building a snowman you build a sandman i guess yeah. <laughs> on the beach but do you keep up any of the, the, the traditions in norway here? i do i do yeah i dress up my kids a lot more than yeah, then I realized that Nan and Pop and my sister-in-law does, you know. So 24th, we're in the full party clothes, and 25th, we're a bit more relaxed. And, and, and the kids go along with that? Yeah, they love, they love having two Christmases there. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. feel like they have a leg in each country, so... It's, it's an issue with a lot of, for a lot of um, migrant parents. Um, trying to keep the language up with the, for the kids. Yeah. yeah, my oldest was six when we came here, and yeah. then I have twins, they were only two. And then my youngest was only five months. So the three youngest have struggled more because as my English gets better, I switch more automatically. Like when my son speaks to me in Norwegian, I will answer back in Norwegian. If my husband then says something in English, I swap and I don't even think about it. Even though I have an accent, it, it happens naturally. So when I speak Norwegian to my children and they answer back in English, I swap to English. And my oldest is like, you are speaking English again, mom. 
And I'm like, oh God, this is so frustrating. But uh, yeah, but I, I had, uh, I've, when my oldest started school, I was thinking, oh, this is a shame that he's not going to be able to spell and, and write in Norwegian. So I did some research and the Norwegian government actually have an online schooling program for Norwegian kids abroad. So he, he goes to a, a school called Global School where he has one and a half hour per week and he has to give in lessons and read. So he is totally bilingual and the younger ones are learning in that school as well. They couldn't follow normal progression. My oldest is following normal progression. If he goes back now, he's in the year that he should have been. The others are in the beginning level because they, they couldn't quite, they followed year one and two, but then they sort of, yeah, it got a bit hard. They were reading long text, not quite understanding. Almost everyone goes to a public school, like the public schools are good and they're free and they're for everyone. Even the royals went to public schools until a certain level. Um, and then the royals, when I grew up, like I'm the same age as Marta Louise, uh, so she ended up in Christli Gymnasium, which is like a private school in Oslo that caters from year seven up till year 12. So then my mom got this fancy idea that I was going to go to this school. And luckily, um, I qualified as one of the good students in my area. So my government actually paid for me to go to that school since I showed interest okay. and freed the place for someone else. So, yeah, I, I did public until a certain level and then private. And looking back at it, mm, it wasn't that different. Yeah. The, the public was just as good, perhaps a couple of unruly students. Yeah. But yeah, no, almost everyone goes to public school and same with health system and yeah, everything is free. Like your taxes are higher. Lots of Norwegian women work, everyone work, everyone pays taxes. And then after that, everything is free. You know, you need a hospital, you get that for free. You need a doctor, you pay a small fee. Dentist is free, except prices, um, which you pay a little fee for. Glasses are free, ex little fee. Um, yeah, health system and education, even at university level, is free for everyone. And that's a big, big difference here because now that I have four children with my husband, we spend a lot of money on private health insurance. Like coming from Norway, I was like, oh my God, I need the best one, on the, the one that covers everything, you know? So we pay a bit for that. We had our kids in private school for a bit. That has since changed. I realized I... I'm Lutheran Christian, brought up, and I realized, I thought Catholics were sort of the same, and I realized it wasn't really. <laughs> I thought they were sort of cool about things, and I realized I had some strong ideas about certain things, so we ended up in the public system. I've called myself a, a closet Catholic my whole life because my mum used to take us to Catholic church because it's a bit more oomph, you know, the crosses are bigger, the smoke is more dramatic. Okay. It's more of, an ex of a church experience, but yeah, we, we didn't go often to church. It was Easter and Christmas. But yeah, so health system and school and everything like that, public, you know, transport, roads. It's a country where everything works. Yeah. And that has... You know, I missed that. I missed that I could take a bus and a tram. And I, I didn't have a driver's license coming here. Mm. I'd lived in London for 10 years. You don't need a driver's license there yeah, either. Yeah, yeah. And I came here and I was like, oh my God, the bus is once an hour. <laughs> I, I 
yeah. I need a car. So I had to learn to drive on the left side of the road. Yeah. I had done a little bit of training and that was on the right side. So that was something I had to get used to. That was going to be my contribution to the environment that I never learned to drive. That's a big difference that we pay more tax back home, but then everything works. Yeah. And having said that, part of the reason coming here, when everything works, when you know, education works, like talking at Tasmania as a whole, I've realized that there's a lot of people here who struggle to read and write, whose education is not that far come. In Norway, it's a place where everyone, even the, the ones who struggle, get up to a certain level. Most people have masters and PhDs, and if you don't, you're sort of, you know, a bit of a loser. And it's, the pressure of achieving has become so, um, so hard or so strong on people that uh, kids now are actually starting to suffer Mm -hmm. um, mentally, because if you're not a success or a, you know, within your area, you're a failure, and, and that's sad. Mm. I, my husband came from far away. You take the globe and you look at Tasmania and you look at Norway, and it couldn't be further apart. Mm -hmm. But there was just. You know, I, I used to, I fell into the rabbit hole of watching Married at First Sight or something when I first came here. And my husband said, if I continue doing that, it's, he needs to divorce me because this is so stupid. But, uh, you know, watching that, it was like, oh, I'm from Melbourne and you're from Sydney. Oh, God, this can't work. And I was like, uh, okay, you're clearly not that interested if you're not willing to move a few hours away, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what I was thinking, going you know, to the other side of the world. Yeah. Like, he's clearly not the one, just, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. yeah. for us it wasn't like, like, we were together, whether it was in London, Oslo, here, Sydney, yeah. I talked to the ladies from Finland and I talked to a lady from Greenland about yeah. children in winter and yeah. this is just it's almost encouraged to oh, play outside all evening from coming home from after school you would have a snack perhaps do your homework or you would do your homework we would do our, our homework later but then you'd be out and you'd be sledding you'd be with the whole all the kids from the street and you'd be up and down this hill did you pull your sled all the way up sled down all the way up sled down you know a hundred times and then you came in for hot chocolate and some bums, and then there was homework in bedtime. Yeah. yeah. So, so and building snow huts and snowmen, and yeah, it really happens every day. Yeah. Yeah, I miss that, and I miss that my kids don't get to have that, and that they can't uh, ice skate, that they can't. I'll repeat that since we had a car. Yeah, yeah I miss that they can't, you know, skate, they can't uh, ski. Um, I need to get onto that. I'm, plan I'm planning to buy inland skates. As a teenager, I realized that I suffered from a little bit of uh, winter depression. Mm -hmm. My mother bought me a lamp, a special daylight thing that I would sit with in the morning. And then when I started studying in London, I realized I didn't have the problem anymore. And I noticed spring coming earlier. And, you know, April was almost summer for me. And that was nice. And I don't need it here mm -hmm. because of the light. 
Yeah, well, that's one thing. Even though people complain about the winter in Tasmania, which mm. I never do anymore. But I don't. I love it. Yeah. It's just right. It's like in autumn, which yeah. is my favourite season. And it's, and it's light. Mm. It's usually quite clear and sunny. Yeah. Whereas if you're in northern Europe, it's dark mm. and gloomy. Summers in, uh, in Tasmania are actually a bit on the hot side for me. I just, all this sunscreening all the time, it gets to me. And I've started to wear a lot of flowy summer dresses because I just feel so hot all the time. And I remember I had a dream in the last heat wave. I woke up and I was rolling in my duna and I was... I had dreamt that I was rolling in snow, that I was back in Norway, and I'd missed snow so badly, and I remember thinking, oh, God, snow, I missed you. And I was rolling naked in the snow, and I woke up so happy, realizing it's not actually something that, that I have actually done in real life. I've never rolled naked in the snow, but it's funny how the brain cooks things up. Yeah. And I thought, next time I'm home, I'm going to do that. <laughs> You're talking about this, uh, this concept, being a Scandinavian, I read in a magazine, and I still read magazines, don't have time anymore, but there was this concept about Hygge, and they call it the Danish concept, you know, H-Y-G-G-E, and I thought that's what I grew up with, that's, that's part of life, that's every evening, you know, after work, after dinner, after play and homework, the family gathers together and you have Hygge, which is, you know, the fireplace is on, lit candles, you know, flowers on the table, some snacks, some nice hot chocolate or a cup of tea, and you just talk about everything or watch a film, and it's like, yeah, nice and comfortable and higgly. I have really struggled finding candles here. I can only find scented candles in, in glass. Like, yeah, the long, the long church candles that, you know, have so many candlesticks that I can't feel. Any other challenges that you found in settling in, in Australia? Um, or, or anything that was maybe challenging to adapt, that you needed to adapt to? Uh, I have no idea what the fashion is anymore. No. I used to be up to date, and that was something a, a family member said to me. She lived in London, and she used to come home, and she used to say that everyone in Norwegian, in Norway dresses the same. And me and my cousin didn't, didn't used to get it. Then I lived in London and came back to Norway. And yes, everyone dresses the same. You can tell what type of jacket is fashionable now, what type of boots, which trainer. You just need to have a look out on the street what the young girls are wearing. And you're up to date. <laughs> no, I have no idea. I, and that's perhaps a good thing. I think that's freedom to just be yourself and not follow fashion. That's actually a bit, bit, of, a relief, bit of a relief for me that last year's winter jacket is still okay. Yeah. yeah. You can just wear whatever you want to wear and be yourself, whatever, however weird you are, yeah. or quirky, or whether you work or you don't work. Like, I've had a few years here where I didn't work with the kids, and that was frowned upon a little bit in Norway. I was home with the twins, and you get a sort of family payment because you're home with twins and not sending them to childcare. And I took advantage of that, but everyone's on me, like, when are you going to start work again? And, and whilst here, you know, people, the kids are seven years old and they're still not working. Yeah. That wouldn't fly back home. No. no, you would get a lot of raised eyebrows. And that's been a bit nice.
One thing that you mentioned and that's really common um, for a lot of newcomers to Tasmania is just that thing of finding, finding your people. Yeah, I, I come from an acting background and I have written a bit and I went, I saw, I remember I was strolling my, my, I call him the baby, he's nearly seven now, but he was a baby then. Strolling him around Devonport, my my mother-in-law had dropped me there for a for a day for an outing, you know, when I didn't drive yet, and I came past this shop window and there was a poster uh, about the Devonport wreck, and that they were celebrating 75 years, and I thought, oh my God, there is theatre here, mm-hmm. there is some sort of theatre. So I went to that, and I met uh, Karen Beatty and uh, Ross Hay, and a lot of beautiful people who do acting here in Tassie. And I became, uh, I auditioned for their next play <coughs> and got a part and became part of their reading group. And, you know, since then I've been in Ulverston Rep and in um, Dumore, where Douglas is fantastic and gave me the part of Girl last year um, in A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing, which actually went in a tour down to Hobart and was a professional play. So I got paid and got put up in a nice hotel. So finding your own people wherever you are in the world, you know, yeah, it's important, I think. Been a lot happier since then.